Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, September 13th. The Smashing Her Racket Edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and joining me on today's episode is Anna Holmes, the editorial director at Topic.com. Welcome back to the show, Anna. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we're so happy to have you back. And with Anna in Slate's New York studio is Slate editorial assistant Rachel Hampton. Hey, Rachel. Hi. So we have a lot of good stuff to talk about on this week's episode. First, we're going to take a look at the case of Julia Salazar, a candidate for New York State Senate who has been hounded by accusations that she falsified her background and misrepresented her political views. Then we'll revisit the idea of Me Too comebacks from the perspective of the women whose careers were stunted after they were allegedly harassed by Harvey Weinstein and others. And finally, we'll talk about the tennis match that's been dominating the news this week. Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, and the penalties heard around the world. So we'll talk about whether or not those penalties that arguably cost Serena the match were sexist. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will decide whether something else is sexist. Man flu. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member... You can and should start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. All right, let's get started. Julia Salazar, she is a 27-year-old Democratic Socialist running to unseat an established Democrat in the New York State Senate representing Brooklyn. Uh, She has been getting a lot more mainstream press coverage than the average state politician, in part because her story has kind of taken a turn for the bizarre, in part due to some attacks from right-wing media. Uh, Rachel, why don't you give us a little primer on what's been happening? Definitely. Um, Giving a primer on this is extremely difficult because everything keeps coming out. So (laughs) basically, the Senate race between Salazar and uh, the Democrat incumbent has turned into a complete tabloid circus. Um, Various investigations into Salazar's personal history have cast doubt on claims she's made about being an immigrant. She was born in Miami. Um, They've cast doubt on her religious identity. She identifies as a Jew of color, but it was revealed that she grew up Republican and Christian, even appearing on Glenn Beck's show at some point as a college student. But several of her classmates have basically attested that her current political awakening is real. And then there's kind of a whole side story involving an affair with um, a New York Mets baseball player and thousands of dollars worth of Pottery Barn vouchers. (laughs) An alleged (laughs) affair. An alleged affair, yes. (laughs) Um, And just yesterday, she tweeted that she was about to be outed as a survivor of sexual assault. Um, A new story today that one of the producers sent me said that she is actually a descendant of Catholic elites and that she has a trust fund, which casts even more doubt on her identifying as working class. And there's just a lot going on. And it's all distracting, basically, from the actual race at hand and from her platform, which includes affordable housing, abolishing ICE, universal health care, fixing the subway and decriminalizing sex work. So we can get into it. Um, I have many questions. Even just writing that up, I had so many questions. <laughs> yeah, the thing that made this story interesting to me and slightly disturbing to me is just there's an element to the way that it's been covered and the fact that it's been covered so heavily that feels kind of gratuitously salacious in a way that strikes me as very sexist. So the New York Times headline on the piece about this alleged affair said, an arrest, an affair, Keith Hernandez, just another day in the Julia Salazar campaign. And that kind of makes it sound like she had an affair and an arrest and slept with Keith Hernandez, which everyone involved denies. And well, she had she she was arrested. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she was never charged for that, but she was arrested. And then but, uh, you know, if you read the entire story, it becomes clear or or it comes to seem that this was a bogus claim that Keith Hernandez's ex-wife made um, that Salazar had impersonated her on the phone to get access to her bank accounts. Uh, and I kind of think that Julia Salazar would not be getting this much press and there wouldn't be so much interest in the personal life and kind of strange backstory of a New York State Senate candidate if she was an average looking man and not a relatively attractive 27 year old woman. I I don't disagree with that, but I don't know that that really is the primary reason. I think that there's a lot of attention on young, upstart, attractive candidates for various local political races because of um, the involvement of young people in the political process, particularly in the in the DSA. And I think that, you know, there's a a fair bit of attention on Julia Salazar because of um, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. I think I think that her ascendance and her uh, visibility in the political press has brought visibility onto other people, um, you know, who who are like her, whether they're like her politically or they're like her because they're also female and and brunette and attractive. But so I don't think it's purely sexism. Um, and I and, and I also believe that, you know, when the first reports came out about some inconsistencies in, in Salazar's story, that it was predictable that other news outlets would try and find other ones. Um, and, and so I, I, I don't know that the continued focus on her um, that I would deem it sexist. But I also am, am, am biased, and I have to confess to that, which is that I, I, I don't particularly feel sorry for her because I, cause everything adds up to her looking like someone who doesn't tell the truth about her biography. And I think that's very, very damning. Yeah, I feel like the more I read about her, the more I became kind of surprised that they that she was even run as a candidate to begin with, which, um, you know, she she the, the things that she is saying was sort of a slip of the tongue or a misunderstanding. They don't seem like things that could actually be. That, that somebody could actually mess up on their own biography or that their, you know, the people surrounding them in their campaign could actually mess up so egregiously. Like she literally said that, uh, you know, I moved to the United States when I was a little baby, uh, which is untrue. She was born in the United States. And, you know, she said that she was kind of living in between Colombia and the U.S. when she was a kid. And her mom was like, we went to Colombia a couple times. Uh, she also said she needed to work as a nanny to make ends meet in college. And Rachel, I did not know that she had a trust fund, which actually makes that claim even more insane. But she, you know, didn't need to make ends meet. She then later, when pressed on it, came out and said, well, no, I wasn't helping my family survive. And, you know, it was more like me having a job so I could go to the movies. That's not what anyone means when they say to make ends meet. Um, (laughs) And so I guess the question is, yeah, did she willfully misrepresent herself? Was this a genuine misunderstanding among members of her campaign? Did her views truly evolve over time? Or is she kind of like this cynical opportunist or just young and capricious and taken in by the DSA, which is having a moment right now? So I do, for reasons unknown, believe that her like political change is actually as she says it is. I do think that she has a tendency to misrepresent the truth. And that is not something you want in a candidate. And she admits in, I think, um, a Rolling Stone profile that she should have had a communications team or a press team when she started and that she didn't have that and that a lot of what she was saying was off the cuff. But it does seem strange to me that she wouldn't think that any of that would come back, that people wouldn't figure out that she was born in Miami or that in the legal documents that she points to to prove that she didn't have the affair, that she also said she had $600,000 in a trust fund or that, you know, her own brother came out and said that they didn't grow up working class. Like there are so many things that you just should have thought through. And well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say like, I agree with you, but I think she just lied. I mean, like when I was 27, I didn't need a communications manager to know not to like make up stuff about my biography, whether or not I was running right. for office. Like I, I like like the the age thing. Um, I'm not buying the age thing. I'm not buying that. Oh, she's a neophyte. Like either you tell the truth about things or you don't. And 
I have very little patience right now in 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 my life for people who are fib who fib lie or are grifters <laughs> because of the fact that you know we have one of those individuals in the presidency. Like I just you know perhaps like six years ago I would be more blasé about all this, but um, it 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 speaks to a, a kind of nonchalance about things that are important. Uh, in life, namely facts, <laughs> and and the, and 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 the idea that facts actually are fungible or don't actually matter, and this is not something that's specific to the DSA or to Julia Salazar. It's it's rampant on the, uh, you know, among the GOP. But um, I, th- I think it does need to be called out wherever we see it. I think this particularly bothers me because. Uh, it for somebody who's a member of the Democratic Socialists who wants to abolish ICE, who you know supports a higher minimum wage, uh, and cares about affordable housing, this tells me that she has a complete misunderstanding about the actual meaning of being working class or an mm-hmm. immigrant, and she thinks it's just you know something you can sort of fudge in a backstory, and that it doesn't necessarily have much significance on how you conduct your day to day life. Like that's mm-hmm. the argument that somebody's making when they're saying, "I worked hard as a nanny to make ends meet." They're saying, "I understand what it's like to live as a working class person who has trouble making ends meet." She clearly doesn't, and so, you know, does she really understand what it would mean for a political candidate to have that experience. And it's especially sad because people were trying to smear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as lying about her background, which she wasn't. They were saying, you know, she says she, you know, her her parents were working class, but look, she grew up in this nice looking house in Yorktown Heights, which, you know, yes, somebody can grow up in a house that doesn't look like a shack and still have working class parents. Um, (laughs) But it the fact that now Julia Salazar is trying to say the same thing and it's not true just validates these uh, right wingers who have who believe that being a member of a, a marginalized demographic actually makes you more privileged and gets you unearned benefits through, you know, affirmative action, whether that's formal affirmative action policies or general efforts among progressives to put forth a more diverse slate of candidates. So it makes that whole very valid effort among progressives seem fake. Yeah, so I think the general tenor of the lies to make her seem more marginalized and less privileged than she is also speaks to a general, I guess, weaponization of marginalization and of oppression that is not great for politics. I think there's like politics relatability going on here where she's trying to make her seem more relatable to her voters. And that really shouldn't necessarily be something that we're all focusing on, where it's like, can you do the job? Are you willing to basically learn? And there's this idea that you have to be working class, or you have to be of a certain race to sympathize with what someone's going through. And that shouldn't be we shouldn't have to share an identity for us to be able to work for somebody else's, I guess, betterment. And it's kind of gross that this is what people feel like we have to do to win campaigns. It's to say, I'm one of you versus I am advocating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's patronizing. It's also like, you know, be, being working class or struggling financially or being an immigrant is not a costume you get to put on and then take off. And and it's and it's offensive to, to, to treat it like that. Um, you know, this to me it gets to larger issues of like the ways in which, and I'm not going to say it's just young people, even because now I'm going to sound like an old an old grump. But a lot of young people and some older people like myself um, perform um, their identities or have been taught to perform their identities on social media as a way of um, uh, creating some sort of like legitimacy. And this is like this is the not the end result, but an an end result when you have a political candidate, you know, who, as you said, Rachel, could could get across a message that would resonate with potential voters based on what she wants to advocate for, not necessarily who she is or who she purports to be. Um, but again, it's, it feels it feels of a piece of a certain sort of performance that that um, people feel compelled to engage in. Uh, in this period of time and history, and I and I blame the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a legitimate case to be made, and I think some of us have made this case on this podcast in previous episodes that there is a value to you know representation in uh, a representative democracy, uh, and that 
sharing an identity with your constituents can actually be meaningful and lead to meaningful governance. And, you know, that's an argument that's been made by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said it's uh, unconscionable that a white man has been representing this district for so long. That's majority people of color. We've seen it with Ayanna Presley, who just won in Massachusetts. Same thing. She was running against a candidate who shared she admitted he shared her views on almost everything. She said, we'll we'll vote the same way, but I will lead differently because she's black and she is uh, almost certainly going to be representing the only district in Massachusetts that is majority people of color. Um, So I don't think it means nothing to to have that identity if if it informs the way that you represent your constituents. Um, But yeah, I mean, she's definitely, Julia Salazar is certainly cheapening it by making it seem like just a convenient backstory that a politician might have in order to seem relatable to the people she's trying to convince. For me, the question now is, is this a referendum on the Democratic Socialists' ability to put forth legitimate candidates? I kind of feel bad for them. It seems like, you know, why didn't they see this coming they're not experienced at running candidates who end up winning. People may be watching this and thinking, well, the way you run a campaign and the way you choose your candidates is the way you'll govern. Um, uh, I mean, do I think it's a referendum on on their ability to No, I mean, maybe they should like vet candidates a little bit better. But I but I, I don't I, I don't think it is um, damning of the of the DSA or, or disqualifying of the DSA. And I think that, you know, they're they're they are under more. They and or and their candidates are under more scrutiny than they perhaps would have been or were three years ago, and and yeah. and it's perhaps growing pains. But but like I don't blame the DSA for the fact that Julia Salazar lies. <laughs> I blame Julia Salazar <laughs> for the fact that she lies. Yeah, I uh, I also wonder how she was chosen and how much she. Like if she was also lying to the people around her, you know, whatever committee was involved in deciding who was who they were going to run as a candidate in Mm -hmm. this district. Um, I know I read a piece in the Daily Beast where uh, the Greenpoint Williamsburg district leader for the Democratic Socialists, a guy named Nick Rizzo, who uh, the Daily Beast said, you know, has taken credit for recruiting Salazar to run said, I'm still convinced Julie is the best candidate we could run for this seat, but I really wish we'd known some more information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe that information he wishes he had known was she's not an immigrant. She didn't, you know, work, help her family survive by working as a nanny in college. Like she didn't actually graduate from Columbia University, even though she implied that on her campaign website. Um, but the fact that he still thinks she's the best candidate for this seat I mean, I guess that's kind of what you have to say when you're in the middle of a campaign. But yeah, I do wonder if there might have been somebody who would be a better choice. All right, let's leave it there. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Comebacks. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about comebacks, but mostly the comebacks of men. Um, men who've admitted or been accused of doing horrible things. Uh, Louis C.K. reemerged at the Comedy Cellar to applause and the support from his fellow male comedians. We talked about that on this show. Matt Lauer is reportedly out and about telling fans that he'll be back on TV any day now. But we haven't talked enough, in my opinion, about the women who lost their careers for enduring and not perpetrating the sexual harassment and assault that has made it necessary for these men to stage their comebacks. This is actually a pattern that seems to be consistent across all of the cases that have come out during the Me Too movement. Louis C.K., Harvey Weinstein, Liz Moonves, and many of the women that they victimized say that they were blacklisted in their industries, found it difficult or impossible to find work because the men who allegedly or admittedly harassed them, started spreading rumors that they were hard to work with or dull or bad at their jobs um, or, you know, just 
refused to hire them for any of their productions because they wanted some sort of revenge against a woman who rebuffed them. So my question for you two is, do production companies, directors, producers in Hollywood bear any responsibility for helping these women recover their careers as part of a sort of internal effort to address and correct the harm that so many of them enabled? That's really a tough question. I guess I guess my I guess my first reaction would, would be I don't know or or have or have evidence and it's not that like someone has to give me evidence that is, you know, would be upheld in a court of law that let's say Mira Sorvino's career didn't continue to explode upwards because some because let's say Weinstein was was speaking uh crap about her behind the scenes i'm not i'm not doubting her version of events with regards to what he like his harassment and and, and abuse of her but but being a, a, an actress in hollywood is an extremely um in, insecure place to be for a variety of reasons including the fact that you know one day you're hot one day you're not you know mm-hmm. like if you pick make bad choices movie wise then you can't open them anymore then it's less likely that a casting director or a director is going to cast you in as the lead in his or her next film i mean like it's yeah. it's it's by definition a very insecure um occupation to have and so what i have yet to see is like is is what I think of as proof that their careers were materially harmed because of back channeling and whispering. I'm not I, I I'm not doubting that their careers were harmed because of the indignity and the humiliation of being abused in a variety of ways by a variety of men, whether physically or or even emotionally. I just I, I I'm it's hard for me to say that Hollywood needs to or help people in Hollywood need to um provide repara- what amount to maybe reparations to to actresses who had no guarantee of having long stable careers anyway because there's really no such thing as a long stable career for an actress unless you're like in the 0.05% of them and that's probably even higher than higher percentage than it, than it is. Am I making sense? I'm not sure if I'm making yeah. sense. But, no, you make yeah. a lot of sense. Um, and part of that insecurity of being an actress, in addition to all the things you mentioned, you know, part of which is like, once you turn 30, no one wants you <laughs> as a lead romantic role anymore. But it's, uh, you're an independent contractor, too. And that also has legal implications for whether you can recover any damages for being sexually harassed or assaulted. Um, because harassment law covers employers and employees. And if you're just a free agent trying to get hired for a movie and you get harassed by Harvey Weinstein, uh, you don't have any recourse against him. Mm -hmm. Um, Rachel, what do you think? I think it's very complicated. And I think it kind of, I think all of this swirls around the idea of whether anyone is owed a career Um, Mm. And even the comebacks of like Louis C.K. and Matt Lauer, where um, who was it? Michael Ian Black or someone said you can't just put someone in jail or what like exile for the rest of their lives. And it gets back to this idea that for some reason, Louis C.K. feels like he's owed a career and owed an audience and owed like this certain amount of prestige because I don't really know why I've never found him funny. And so I think that it also like there are women who have been penalized in this way where their careers are like they're blacklisted for various reasons that don't include sexual assault, including Anne Hathaway, who was blacklisted or just went away for five years because people found her annoying. And so I think when you get to the idea of, as Anna said, like reparations, it gets really complicated because it swirls into all this other sexism that's in the industry where your career could have tanked for other reasons and so when you're specifically talking about like Mia Sorvino and um, other actresses who have been like sexually assaulted and harassed who were blacklisted I don't really know what the reparation process would look like for them other than people just continuing to not blacklist them like hire them (laughs) if you want to but 
Yeah, but we can't even prove that they were blacklisted. Meaning, there like, is, it, 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 it might be that, like, you know, someone is actually not a good actress, or like, wasn't right for that particular role, or the movie that he or she was cast in didn't do well, and therefore, the, therefore, the, you know, the person's career suffered. Um, but, but, like, you know, I, I also guess I, I um, react a little bit to like the idea that people are being blacklisted because there were people who are being actually blacklisted in the mid twentieth century for the political views and and. In 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 a way that that I think I would just be careful with the with the with the word blacklist in this in this case. Um, no, it's okay. I I think the closest thing that we have to proof is actually in the cases of Mir Sorvino and Ashley Judd, where Peter Jackson said that he was con- considering uh, casting them in Lord of the Rings and actually asked them which roles they might want, and then um, he has come out. After after those women um, accused Harvey Weinstein of assault and harassment, he said, oh, yeah, actually, Miramax told me that they were a nightmare to work with. That's a direct quote. And we should avoid them at all costs. This was in 1998. Um, And he said, you know, at the time we have we had no reason to question them. In hindsight, I realized that this was probably the Miramax smear campaign in full swing. Uh, You know, who knows whether. Ashley Judd and Mira Sorvino are a nightmare to work with. But I do think that it's I don't doubt or I guess I I don't feel like I have reason to doubt that they were. um, You make a good point about the word blacklisted, that there was a concerted uh, rumor campaign against them started by Harvey Weinstein, because I think that that stuff does happen in Hollywood and that it is a lot. It's it's based on reputation and, you know, somebody as powerful as him who is the one making the decisions about who gets money for what project probably has a lot of power over who gets hired. And I mean, everything that we know about Harvey Weinstein from the pieces that have come out about him um, over the past almost a year now. Wow, we're almost at the one year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. he, show him to be an incredibly vindictive person who will go to great lengths to get revenge against somebody who he believes has wronged him. Um, you know, the if you recall, there was a piece in The New Yorker about him hiring ex-Mossad agents to pose as reporters um, that were trying to get these women's stories so they would know exactly what they had against Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I don't want to, I would not put a limit on the things that he might do to try to prevent the story of his assault and harassment, alleged assault and harassment from getting out. Um, That said, I feel a little bit more convinced by the idea of some sort of reparations for these women than you two do, I think. Um, You know, if I I don't think I need to say this, but, you know, if they're good actresses and if if they have good auditions for a part, like I think that there should be a little bit of a concerted effort to reconsider some of these women for roles. I was very happy to see. But uh, you can't Anna- force that. I mean, like you can't. No, force you can't. And, and therefore, like the idea of reparations is something that is, you know, legally mandated or 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 or, or agreed upon you know, by a broad swath of people who who have power. And I just don't I, I don't think you can expect that among the myriad of people who make the decisions about who gets cast in movies and television shows, which, you know, include directors, producers, writers, showrunners. You know, I mean, the studio heads. It's it's I, I just I just don't I, I don't think reparations for actresses who were maligned by Harvey Weinstein or another powerful men are, are really an option. Like, I, 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 I don't think you can enforce that um and and i think that you also if you start to enforce that 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 you could go down you know a a, a road that i'm i don't know i mean there are plenty of actresses and actors who don't get cast because they're the wrong they're the wrong ethnicity (laughs) or the or they're too old or, or 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 what have you and i i just don't i don't think anyone is entitled to a a career yeah, I guess I have a hard time imagining what it would look like for an entire industry that is, you know, dispersed and very dependent on who's hot right now, which it's impossible to, you know, cast Mira Sorvino, the Mira Sorvino and Ashley Judd of 1998 now because they've 
you know, been out of the spotlight for so long. So it would be a very different thing to cast them now than it would back then when they were they had just starred in uh, a bunch of really big name films or TV shows. Um, So, yeah, I have a hard time imagining how it would look. I did see one example in the second season of Glow. I don't know if you guys watched that. But um, Annabella Sciorra, who uh, was nominated for an Emmy for her role on The Sopranos, um, and accused Harvey Weinstein of rape in October and said she didn't work for several years. I I think in part because she, well, she says, you know, she was getting pushback of we heard this about you. Uh, She kept encountering Harvey Weinstein. She would audition for a production and not realize he was involved. Um, I think her situation was could have been partially because there was a, a whisper campaign against her and partially because she didn't feel comfortable working in the industry for a while after that and because Harvey Weinstein was everywhere and she was seeing her alleged rapist everywhere. Mm-hmm. That felt meaningful to me as somebody who has been watching the the inadequate punishment of all the men who have uh, harassed and assaulted women, allegedly or admittedly, um, and not seen anything for the victims. And I think about things in terms of uh, I think that's only half of the equation to think about punishment for the people who did wrong when, uh, you know, I, I don't feel bad for actresses who probably are still doing just fine with the money that they've earned from the jobs they've already had. But uh, I think it's worthwhile to think about how do you redress the harm that was done in addition to the person who did the harm. Yeah, I mean, I think that we should consider, I mean, Peter Jackson came out and said that he listened to the Whisper campaign. Who are all the men, basically, who are listening to the Whisper campaign? And what are they doing now besides occasionally coming out in media? Like, why isn't Peter Jackson casting uh, Mia Sorvino and Ashley Judd? He already said that he had in the, I feel like it's up to individual actors in this specific case as Anna said, versus the entire industry, because I just don't trust Hollywood is going to do anything about it. And so I'm really curious about the people who chose to listen to the Whisper campaign and chose to believe that these actresses were difficult to work with. And would they have believed that if it wasn't about women? Would they have believed that if it was Orlando Bloom, who someone said was difficult, would he still have been in Lord of the Rings? Probably. I mean, people still cast Mel Gibson to star in movies. Exactly. And he does not seem like somebody who's particularly easy to work with. Or no, but, to work but, with. But, but like, but but I guess I'm saying like I don't think I don't think it's as like cut and dry as that. Like do do I do I personally think Mel Gibson should be cast in anything? No. But he like people make decisions to cast him because they think they're he's going to make them money. Like when it comes it comes down to is 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 money and power. And like the Peter Jackson is under no obligation to cast Mira Sorvino or Ashley Judd just because they were subject to a whisper campaign, you know, over a decade ago. He will. He should cast. The, he should cast the person that's right for the role that he has to cast for. And they may not fit that. They may not fit. Be, be the right person. And so he he's under no obligation to like to to, to to cast them or to make their careers whole as 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 part of reparations, even if he was subject and 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 um to and 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 listened to a whisper campaign i mean he came out to talk about it i'm not saying that's that that's all he needs to do but i think this is all larger the larger issue here is about women in hollywood and women's careers in hollywood um being subject to the whims of men who control all the who control all the money pretty much in hollywood um it's it's about the sort of roles that they're given uh, which tend to be smaller um, and and much more subservient to the to, to the male roles. I mean, it's it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is that that this is a, a a symptom of a larger thing that has to do with women in Hollywood and not just women who are in front of the camera, but um, like the lack of directors, producers, et cetera, who are female who are in positions of power to make those make those decisions. And I think that what's happening. It, in part because of Me Too, but it precedes Me Too. It precedes you know, what, what erupted last year is a reckoning about like um, inclusion and representation in Hollywood that actually started years and years and years ago, in part because of agitations uh, of people on the Internet pointing out the inequities and, and, and the ways in which the stories that we're seeing on small screens and big screens are not actually reflective of the world that we live in. I don't think Me Too would have would have erupted without that 
without those discussions preceding it. And I guess what I'm saying is that I, I, I think the larger issue is the opportunities women are given across the board in Hollywood and elsewhere, um, not whether Mira Sorvino or Ashley Judd's careers were harmed because Harvey Weinstein, you know, en- enacted a smear campaign against them. Hmm. What you're saying makes me think of something that just happened in D.C. at a baseball stadium. So we are one of our local celebrity chefs. Mike Isabella um, has been accused of harassment and mistreatment by several women um, and People have been boycotting his restaurants uh, and he the Nationals baseball stadium, I think, removed uh, like a little stall he had there and decided to fill it with a rotating slate of women chefs. And that seemed like an interesting response to harassment. Like, you know, hopefully they're also considering the harassment policies and uh, accountability measures that they're that are in place at the stadium, but I'm like, it kind of felt stupid to me that they were taking <laughs> this instance of harassment and saying like, well, let's just give women in general the opportunity to cook some things, you know, because this man cooked some things and he harassed people. So like maybe women will do better. At, at the same time, I was thinking, you know, as you're talking about Anna, it is the fact that he w- is able to become a celebrity chef while allegedly treating people so horribly behind the scenes and possibly uh, scaring women out of the industry uh, is is part of a system where women aren't given opportunities. I'm wondering if something like that, you know, in Hollywood now, like uh, there's been a renewed effort to get women into positions of power. And, uh, you know, part of the Time's Up movement, they're talking about how to get more women behind the camera. It's important, but it still to me seems to be missing the point a little bit. I mean, I think it just gets to the fact that there's really nothing that's going to repair what's happened. Like, I just think that all of these efforts that we're we're trying to do is trying to paper over the harm that's been done, and it's nev- that's never going to happen. And I think that we are all kind of just spinning our wheels because we don't know really how to keep it from happening. I'm sure it's still happening right now. And we have don't really have measures in place. And men still run most of the world. And so I think that we're really just white trying, men. White so, men specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really think we're just trying to paper over the fact that people have been harmed. They're still being harmed. And people and the men who are doing the harms are allowed to have comebacks. And I think that every single measure that we're trying to institute is just going to have that kind of sadness. To, like it's going to be tinged with that kind of sadness. That's a great point, Rachel. <laughs> That's a great note to end on. Um, I'm really curious to hear what our listeners think about whether and how Hollywood bears any responsibility for helping the careers of the women who were maligned by Harvey Weinstein, etc. Uh, Janet Jackson is another one. Liz Moonves uh, apparently tried to torpedo her career after her breast was exposed at the Super Bowl. I mean, this stuff goes really deep, so... Let us know if you have any better ideas than we do about uh, how to redress that harm. Serena Williams. I'm so excited for this conversation. (laughs) Okay. Um, So Serena Williams. So during the women's final of the U.S. Open on Saturday, Serena was penalized numerous times, first because of an allegation that her coach was making hand gestures, i.e. coaching, from the grandstand. Uh, Then, because she slammed her racket down in frustration after losing a point and the racket broke. Uh, And and then because she spoke very sharply to the umpire in response to him giving her the first two infractions or in response to his response to her first two infractions. She then ended up losing the, the match to Naomi Osaka. So... Did Serena violate some sort of rule or rules? I believe that she did, like according to what the rule books say. Um, did she deserve the penalty she, she received? I would say no. And a lot of other people also say the same thing. Um, as Sally Jenkins put it in the Washington Post uh, on Sunday um, after Serena's loss to Osaka and the resulting furor around what had happened she said sally did said that the umpire wasn't going to take it from a woman pointing a finger at him and speaking in a tone of aggression and we will never know whether young osaka really won the 2018 
U.S. Open or had it handed to her by a man who was going to make Serena Williams feel his power. It was an offense far worse than any that Williams committed. Um, I'm going to quote from someone else who had some some smart things to say about this. It's Rebecca Traster, who in New York Magazine's The Cut wrote um, on Sunday that there was also a racialized aspect to the umpire's um, reaction to and then penalization of Serena. Um, Rebecca wrote that Serena was livid. And one thing that black women are never allowed to be without consequence is livid. Women's challenge to male authority and especially black women's challenge to authority is automatically understood as a threat, a form of defiance that must be quashed. So... (laughs) um, I guess I would back up and say I'm looking at Rachel now. Rachel, did did, did Serena um, deserve the penalties that she um, received for the infractions that she committed? I do not think that she did. I will admit that I only watched tennis with my grandfather, so I don't really know a lot about the rules. But the thing, Rebecca Tracy started her piece with something that really resonated with me, which is she started off with saying, "I don't care about the rules because the rules were created in a time." when tennis was primarily wealthy white people, which it still is. Those rules were designed to have decorum back when, like, visible sweat was considered sinful. And so I really, <laughs> like, I really don't care that if Serena did break these rules, it's because these rules were never designed. They were designed to keep someone like Serena off the court. And so I really don't care if she broke the coaching rule. So many people have broken. And then so many men, as she consistently states, break like this visible anger rule where she like smashed her racket and I I if she broke the rules she only got penalized because she was a black woman breaking the rules uh-huh. because those rules are consistently broken by men all the time. So I agree with Rebecca that I don't care if she broke the rules. Like she got unfairly penalized for something that everyone in the game basically does. Uh-huh. What about you, Christina? I have uh, maybe a little bit of an unpopular opinion on this. Go for um, it. I think that Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, um, made some good points, at least helped me understand it because, um, like you, Rachel, I don't really know anything about the rules of tennis. Or I learned that uh, the guy, uh, Ramos, the who I thought might be called a referee, is actually called an umpire. umpire. <laughs> yeah. Which was strange. Um, so, yeah, the... The umpire apparently is known for being a stickler for the rules. And, um, you know, during the same tournament, he made uh, the same or a similar call against a man. In cases where he can use his discretion, he will often follow the letter of the law or um, err on the side of punishing the players or penalizing the players instead of letting them, you know, get away with something or giving them a verbal warning instead of actually enacting a penalty. So I am hesitant to say that he wanted what the quote that you gave from Sally Jenkins and I thought was a little bit hyperbolic. Um, I don't think that Ramos was trying to show Serena his male power um, by giving her a penalty. I also think that it's possible to understand that somebody has a reason for behaving a certain way. I mean, Serena has been accused of cheating and doping because she's so muscular. Um, and, And those accusations have been lobbied against her for the entirety of her career. And so I can see why being accused of cheating by having her coach coach her from the sidelines would be especially offensive to her. And and that is one thing that she was really screaming at him about, just saying, like, you know, I'm not a cheater. At first, she was very calm. And then later, when she realized he actually gave her the penalty, she got mm-hmm. more angry, where she was like, I'm not a cheater. Why are you accusing me of being a cheater? Um, I think it's possible to understand the reasons that she behaved that way and to think that she shouldn't have behaved that way. And for me, the element that really stood out as I watch the video is you know she is the arguably the greatest and most famous athlete that exists right now um she's incredibly wealthy incredibly well known um and i think that she has a responsibility especially when she's playing somebody who's a lot younger than her um and and this you know this was osaka's first us open she did a report on serena williams in third grade yeah, uh you know not that this should necessarily determine how Serena plays the game, but I think that she has a responsibility to um, 
to, to, to play by the rules. And smashing a racket, uh, I agree with you, Rachel, that there probably shouldn't be a rule against that. But Why not? Why not, though? Why not? Because I don't think curious. it matters. I don't think it. I think that if you are not hurting somebody or cheating and you just show anger by mm-hmm. smashing your own racket mm-hmm. that you are going to have to pay for or your whatever company is going to have to pay for um, that, that it shouldn't matter. And that that I think there are a lot of rules in tennis, including the fact that they didn't let her wear a bodysuit, which she specifically chose because she gets pulmonary well, that, embolisms. Yeah, that wasn't a rule about tennis. That was someone at the, that was the French Open. Like like like. So I, I feel like I feel like there, there, there are rules that each that each um, competition or the officials of each competition may may have. And then there's the, the governing body of Grand Slam um, tennis events, and then there's how certain umpires behave, and and so so like who who makes rules? I think depends on on the, the circumstance. I mean, on the one hand, I agree with you. She shouldn't. She, she should be able to smash her racket, and then nothing happens. But like the fact is, there's a rule against smashing a racket, and maybe the rule should go away. But if she breaks a rule about smashing her racket, then you, it's it's hard it's hard to say well she shouldn't have been punished for that <laughs> that 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 said you know and, and actually i i don't have the data and i'd be interested in it as to whether or not other people who smash their rackets don't get penalized and sh- and, and she did what 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 i do think felt very gendered and racialized was the speed with which the umpire you know penalized her um on the one hand i understand that like she is subject to penalization because she was actually breaking rules. Uh, on the other hand, I think other people get 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 away with breaking those rules in in ways in ways that she didn't. But it's I, it's just that I'm very 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 torn about it. Um, I'm very torn about it. I I I, I do think that um, she was and is under a lot of pressure. Um, I, I not just because she's in she was in the final of a Grand Slam event, but because she was trying to go for. Her twenty fourth win, which would have tied her with um, I'm forget- with Margaret Court. Um, I, she, you know, she has had a number of of, of health issues. She ha- had a baby and was coming back from 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 that experience. And you know that at not I'm not someone who's had a baby, but I understand that it takes a physical <laughs> toll on your body. Um, and she particularly, you know, had a a life threatening complication after her C section mm-hmm. and in the her recent HBO documentary series she was she talked a lot about being scared that she wouldn't be able to live up to her history and reputation after coming back from that and so i saw that come out too in the videos yeah but and and you know i think that she comported herself very 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 well after the match was over and 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 you know that was a really really tough moment because she was had to deal with her own anger and process her own anger and disappointment but also you know, put herself in the shoes of of Osaka, who that that was that was a really intense and, and upsetting moment, as well as a very positive one for 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 Osaka. And I think that Serena, you know, was was extremely mature and gracious about it. But I don't necessarily think that it's not that it's nothing when you when you smash a racket if that is against the rules. And maybe the rule needs to be changed, but the rule's not changed. <laughs> I think the smashing the racket was definitely a penalty. I think what made it worse and what made the subsequent subsequent call worse is that the first infraction that she had, the coaching, was something that they couldn't prove that she saw the coaching. Right. They couldn't necessarily prove that the hand signal they gave was coaching in right. the moment, although he admitted it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so I think... And also, yeah, she didn't, she didn't ask, she didn't turn to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so I think that if she just got penalized for smashing the racket, it would have been like, okay, fine, yes. But that would have been the first one, and she wouldn't have lost a point, and mm-hmm. then she wouldn't have lost a game after mm-hmm. that for calling him a thief. Right. And so I think that it was the building of infractions predicated on one that just seemed harshly levied at Serena specifically, mm-hmm. where like off-court coaching is apparently something that happens all the time right. and seems very hard to prove. And so I think that that is part of the reason why this felt so fraught is that the first call just set up the entire game, and the right. first call just felt very capricious. Yeah, it was like a it was like a snowball effect. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like it's, it's like you can't you can't. You can't look at those infractions in isolation because they because one built up to another, or at least his the umpire's reaction to mm-hmm. 
to each escalated and therefore her reaction to his reaction escalated exactly and i think her reaction the first one she's like i don't i wouldn't cheat to win and why would she she has 23 grand slams why would she cheat after and so i think that the idea that she one of the most decorated players in the sport is cheating i can understand why she got so angry at the first one and then for everything to just build i can understand why her anger got like why it got so out of hand and she smashed the racket and she kind of went off yeah i mean i i think that i definitely don't you know think she was cheating or anything i mean her coach did say afterwards that, yes, I was doing it, but all the coaches do it, um, which, you know, I think is broadly true, um, which, you know, I think that was his fault. Yeah, it's his, fault. his fault. Yeah. And- um, but, you know, I think she I mean, she had lost to Osaka before. And at the time that he started coaching her from the sidelines, Osaka was playing better and I think won the first set. Um, the call that seemed most egregious to me was the the final one for verbal abuse that cost her the game. Right. Um, And because it was the third one, not because of that specific call, but because it was the third. And that, that decision by Ramos to say that was verbal abuse when she didn't curse at him Mm -hmm. and he didn't warn her ahead of time, like, Hey, if you keep going like this, I'm going to, you know, give you the game penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, That seemed completely subjective to me. I uh, on the Hang Up and Listen podcast, they were saying that there is, you know, something in the rule books that says if you impugn an ump's character and accuse him of, I don't know, making a bad, uh, accuse him of having bad morals or poor ethics or something, then that it can be a, a reason to call verbal abuse. But you know, I think that is something where if you look at the way men treat. Uh, umps and women treat umps and and who gets called for what I think there is an, a good argument for racism and sexism there and certainly the way that it was portrayed in the media in a lot of media outlets afterwards was uh, incredibly racist and sexist there was a tweet going around um, that put two New York Post headlines side by side oh God. the first one <laughs> yeah I bet you can already guess where this is going um, the first one was uh, some baseball player or uh, coach, quote unquote, arguing a strike by sticking his finger in um, an umpire's face, like right up in his face, looked like he was going to poke his eye out. Mm -hmm. The second one was Serena pointing at the umpire from down on the court and her she was having the mother of all meltdowns. Um, So I think definitely the way people were interpreting her afterwards. um, Yeah, it's totally gendered and racialized. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, she like that. There was a cartoon that an Australian oh cartoonist, Mark Knight, <laughs> I have his name down here, uh, did for did for the Herald Sun, which is um like the Post, owned by uh, News Corp, the Murdochs. Um, and the and the cartoon depicts her after ha- having slammed her racket on the ground. She's like jumping in mayor she's having a tantrum so she's in midair she's having a midair tantrum wailing like a child and there's like a pacifier on the ground like a literal baby pacifier on the ground as if she as if it is just dropped out of her mouth and now she's screaming and having a tantrum but and 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 so it's not just that but then like the way that she's drawn is drawn in a very caricatured um way that that is quite frankly really reads as 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 racist um and like something that you would have seen in the early 20th century in the United States or or, 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 or maybe even the mid to late 20th century in the United States um, and sometimes on the pages of the New York Post. Uh, but but, you know, and then and then the in the background of the cartoon is is a, a depiction of Naomi Osaka, who is given lighter skin and blonde straight hair and like a tiny little a tiny little body so 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 the the, the juxtaposition between Naomi and and Serena in that cartoon is is in itself telling not to mention just the the way that Serena's depicted um but you know my reaction to that is having been married to an Australian at one point um and I'm not saying this about him but about his friends <laughs> they, yeah, can you're be, the they can be very casually racist or explicitly ra- racist they, they, they like you know it's not it's not a it's not a paradise over there yeah seeing that cartoon <laughs> just repeated over and over on my timeline on monday was like it was just the way that you apparently can't conceptualize a naomi is also black 
yeah. can, along with Serena, just says so much. And also just it, the way that she's portrayed just really hammers home just the way that Naomi Osaka has kind of been forgotten in this entire uh-huh. debacle where uh-huh. obviously a lot of this is like a lot of this is around Serena, but Naomi's first Grand Slam win is going to be forever yeah. kind of tainted by this moment. And she was crying as she stood up to accept the trophy. People were booing her. Not really booing no, her, no, but they booing, weren't booing her. They weren't booing yeah. her, but yeah. I could standing up there as a twenty year old like while everyone is booing you at what is supposed to be the greatest moment of your life, playing against one of your biggest heroes who you know is angry, is just, I can't imagine being her. And then seeing this cartoon, there's no way she didn't see it because she's faced so much of the same like racism that Serena has. And to see herself portrayed as basically a white woman, like she looks white in that cartoon. And it was terrible. Yeah, she, there's there's something, there's something that's very, um, there's something about her depiction. It's not only that she is depicted as as white, which is which is you know, Manami Osaka is not just Japanese, but she's half Haitian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. she's not white. Yeah, <laughs> she's not she's, even close to white. Yeah, <laughs> she's not white at all. And also, this also gives this idea that mixed people are all have to be mixed with white. And I feel right. like that's something that it's. But she's also portrayed as like being very as being very innocent mm-hmm. and kind of almost like fragile. Mm-hmm. Like 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 none of her none of her physical. Um, power and agency comes across in that cartoon at all. She seems like she's like real thin and kind mm-hmm, of like mm-hmm. yeah, like she's and, and, and her and, breasts are weirdly uh, <laughs> centralized. Yeah, and I know that this is all supposed to be like oh well, it's a cartoon. It's you know exaggerating, but the purposes of cartoons is every exaggeration means something. Mm-hmm. And they made the ref white too. I'm sorry, the ump. The ump. Yeah, there's just there's just something like like she her her, her actual physical. Um, dominance and agency is is removed completely in that cartoon, um, so as to contrast her with Big Bad Serena. Um, yeah, it's 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 a really gross cartoon, but I can't say that I'm surprised that it came from the place it came from. <laughs> I can't say I'm surprised, but I forever have the ability to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I know we have a lot of uh, listeners in Australia, so I wonder if any of them uh, will email us and tell us their reaction and uh, their community's <laughs> reactions to the cartoon. Um, you can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Ugh, poor Osaka. Poor Osaka. But also, congratulations, Osaka. This is a great yeah, moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm excited to see her mm-hmm. career continue. Um, She's amazing. Yeah. It was. It, she's. She's really. She's a really exciting young young player. Yeah. All right. Should we get on to our recommendations? Sure. Um, my recommendation this week is not something that is new. It is in fact something that is a few years old. But it is um, a Nancy Myers movie called "It's Complicated" that <laughs> I have watched um, a wild amount of times in the past two weeks <laughs> um, because what, it's what, now on what, HBO. Oh, that's why. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so it's starring Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin and. Steve Martin and it's just very it's one of those movies where it's not me I can't see myself in it because I'm a black woman and there's no black people in this movie (laughs) there aren't are there yeah no it's not but it's very much just heartwarming fluff and it it just nourishes my spirit in these like weird autumn times where it's not summer and Mm -hmm. it's not autumn and it's Mm -hmm. gross outside and you can feel the beginnings of like seasonal depression coming on. Yeah. Also, it has like a great kitchen. It does. Oh my God. That's that's something that's colorblind. Everyone (laughs) wants a great kitchen. Uh Yes. Isn't that the the Nancy Myers thing? Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The kitchen. Big, beautiful kitchen. The bakery. I just, (laughs) it made me want to move to Santa Barbara and open a bakery. Yeah. (laughs) There's no white, there's no black people there. Let me just warn you. There's no black people in Santa Barbara. Um, (laughs) I'm always like, I want to move to this place. I want to move to that place. And I'm like, it's it's really very homogenous. Like, I think Maine is beautiful, but I'm like, but there's no other black people there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As someone who grew up in New Hampshire, I can confirm that. Yeah. Um, You know what? you know what's um what's funny about the, those the kitchens and like Nancy Myers movies or or another you know pop culture products where the people are obviously well off is that I always think if I had that kitchen I would cook. I don't <laughs> think actually that I would <laughs> because if I had that kitchen I would be wealthy enough that I get someone else to cook for me. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I always have this fantasy that like that's what that's the thing that's going to get me cooking. Um and when in fact I live in New York I have a tiny apartment with a tiny kitchen and it's much easier just to order out. Um, anyway. <laughs> 
Um, I might rewatch the movie now that you've mentioned it because I haven't seen it since it came out. It's really good. (laughs) Okay, my recommendation is a film called Crime and Punishment uh, that came out um, theatrically about two weeks ago and and at the same time was being distributed and is being distributed on, on Hulu. So those of you who don't live near a theater where it's playing, you can get it on Hulu. It is a documentary, a full-length feature documentary by um, the director, Stephen Mang. It is about a group of 12 New York City Police Department officers who um, go to court to take to take the police department and the city of New York to court over what they allege, I think rightly, um, are mandated quotas of arrests that they're, that they're being forced to that, that, that basically as part of their jobs as police officers they are that, that there are um quotas that they are being given in terms of numbers of arrests that that then lead to the arrests of mainly people of color um who are in struggling economic um, economic circumstances um and the police officers are rightly disturbed by this and um, believe that the policies of the department are racist. Now, this was a number of years ago that this felt that this was being filmed, but it it is a very big deal, as a lot of us know, for a police officer to go up against his or her fellow officers or the institution of a police department like the NYPD um, in general. Um, and as we see through the course of the film, they are penalized for their for for for, for speaking out. Their careers are are held back for their speaking out against what they believe, again, rightly, are are racist, classist policies. Um, it's just a very, 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 very powerful documentary. The access that the director got, um, not just to the officers who are um, speaking up, but but to, but to other experts and people within the police department um, is, is, is really extraordinary. And it's just, it's, you know, it's especially powerful, I think, for me, because... W- we are living in a time in which it feels as if all of these horrific things are happening and no one's doing anything about it. Um, I'm namely talking about the presidential administration <laughs> um, or or that people feel unable to do something about it. Um, and again, this film was was was. Uh, it was filmed many years ago, um, and 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 actually covers a, a, a lot of time. But it 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 does it it feels important not just because of what the officers are protesting against, but because it's an example of people putting themselves and their careers on the line for um, to speak up about what is right and what is wrong. So I cannot recommend it enough. It's very 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 powerful. Um, Crime and Punishment. It's on Hulu. I think it's still in theaters. Um, I should also caveat that it was uh it, it was produced in part by someone who works for the same company that I work for um but that's not why I'm bringing it up <laughs> I actually think it's really fantastic and it's gotten really great reviews and yeah it's 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 not there's nothing really gendered about it except there there is one female police officer in the group of 12 um and how she is penalized is 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 quite is different and quite interesting um than that of her male colleagues, but I, I would say if you care about um, communities and you care about policing and you care about um, injustice and people who are trying to to overcome injustice, you're going to like this documentary. Those sound like two uh, very good antidotes to the malaise that I've been feeling the past couple of weeks between the <laughs> yeah. news and the constant rain. Yeah, <laughs> um, I am recommending an album. It's the soundtrack to Sorry to Bother You, which is a film we talked about on this show. Um, So I'm going to Oakland this weekend and I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what I watched recently that was set in Oakland, Sorry to Bother You, and it had such great music and I'd like to listen to that music. And lo and behold, the soundtrack was incredibly good. Um, It's a bunch of new music from The Coup. That's C-O-U-P, a band fronted by Boots Riley, who wrote and directed the film. Um, They got big in the 90s. And every song on this album is a total banger. Uh, A lot of them are really joyful and dancey and made me want to go to the club. There's also a lot of really (laughs) good weird stuff in there, um, which is, you know, the band is very weird, uh, but also accessible because the beats are amazing and they've got really tight musicianship. Um, It's pretty much my exact 
ideal mix of hip hop and punk and funk uh, and synths. And what's great about it is it's also uh, there's a total murderer's row of guest artists, including some Oakland artists like Tune Yards, who I love um, and who did the score to the movie. And E-40, who's a legendary Bay Area rapper. Um, plus there's Janelle Monet and Killer Mike. Um, and I loved it. And I think no matter what kind of music you like, you will probably find something to like on that soundtrack. Uh, and I didn't realize that the film was actually based on a concept album by The Coup from 2012. So I learned mm. a thing while Wikipediaing cool. it. <laughs> cool. That's our show for today. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. This is her very first episode that she's producing. We're so happy that she's our new producer. If you like The Waves, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice and give us a rating and review. Thank you, as always, for listening. For Anna Holmes and Rachel Hampton, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.